the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back and hope, or actually glad to be back. Hope you had a good long holiday weekend for those of you who had the opportunity to enjoy one. We're glad to be back in studio. Today we're going to talk with Fred Lucas. He's the White House correspondent for the Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about the on-again, off-again meeting with North Korea. So what's next for the United States and North Korea in terms of a summit? Well, we know that there are ongoing conversations. We'll try to bring you up to date, not only on what's happening now, but what the options are at this point. We're also going to talk with Leslie Fields. She is the author of The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and strength. So we're looking forward to um, to talking with her about that. Both of those conversations will be in the 5 o'clock hour. First, taking a look at some of the developing news stories, the United States reportedly held off on slapping new sanctions on North Korea. Negotiations for a still possible summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un continue. We'll bring you up to date on that in just a few moments. Also, militants in Gaza, they fired more than 25 mortar shells toward communities in southern Israel, the Israeli military says, and apparently the largest single barrage since the 2014 Israeli Hamas war and a South Carolina news anchor and photographer were killed while reporting on the subtropical storm Alberto in North Carolina, while another National Guardsman was swept away. It was a bloody Memorial Day weekend in Chicago as at least eight people were killed. Some 30 were wounded in shooting across the city and Starbucks uh, will close more than 8000 company owned stores across the United States this afternoon for employees to undergo racial bias training and a Utah man released from a Venezuela. Jail after about two years of captivity receives a warm welcome in his home state last night. Well, back to the top story. The White House reportedly halted new sanctions against North Korea as representatives from the U.S. and the North met uh, in Singapore today, or rather last night. A top aide of uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un arrived in Singapore Monday evening to meet with U.S. government officials, an indication that the fragile June 12th summit with the president could proceed. The Wall Street Journal reported that the White House was poised to announce additional sanctions on North Korea as early as today, but decided to hold off on doing so. Well, the president's said Sunday that a U.S. delegation was in North Korea to plan for a potential meeting with Kim, and he called off the summit last week following increasing harsh rhetoric and threats to cancel the meeting by North Korea. The Treasury Department had come up with the new sanctions to levy on uh, almost three dozen targets, including Chinese and Russian entities, according to the Wall Street Journal. Well, more than 25 mortar shells were fired uh, today from the Gaza Strip in the direction of communities in southern Israel, the Israeli military said. There were no reports of injuries, but the reported attacks would be the largest fired in a single incident since 2014, the Israel-Hamas war. Now, most mortars were intercepted by the Iron Dome defense system in Israel. One shell landed near a kindergarten shortly before it opened, according to media reports. And a South Carolina anchor and photographer died on Monday after a 
large tree fell on their SUV while they were covering subtropical storm Alberto. WIFF news anchor Mike McCormick and photojournalist Aaron Schmelzer, they were covering rain impact in Polk County, North Carolina, when a tree fell on their SUV, killing both of them. WIFF uh, in a, a statement said, all of us at WIFF News 4 are grieving. We are a family and we thank you, our extended family, for your comfort as we mourn and as we seek to comfort the families of Mike and Aaron. Also, the body of a National Guardsman was uh, found in a Maryland river on Tuesday, two days after he went missing while attempting to rescue a woman and her cat during devastating flash floods that swept up through Elcott County. Howard County Police said the body of Edison Hermond, 39, was located uh, in a river close by, just across the Baltimore County line. He was seen at about 520 on Sunday uh, near a restaurant in Howard County, according to the police. Well, rescue personnel have been uh, searching buildings, waterways, and the areas since the flood. There have, um, uh, have been no other reports of missing people. And at least eight people were killed and 30 others wounded in shootings across Chicago since midnight on Friday during Memorial Day weekend, according to police. Last year, over the entire weekend of the unofficial start of summer, seven people were killed, 45 others were hurt. To try to reduce the grim statistics, police had been trying to curb gun violence by employing some 1,300 extra officers on patrol with help from state and federal partners. And Starbucks will close, or has already closed, more than 8,000 company-owned stores across the country today to conduct racial bias training for its employees. The move comes following an outcry over the arrest of two black men at one of its stores in Philadelphia last month. The coffee chain's leaders have since apologized and met with the two men and reached out to activists and experts in bias training to put together a curriculum for its 175,000 workers. That has put a spotlight on the little-known world of unconscious bias training. Which, when you think about it, is a little bit scary. Unconscious bias training. If they think you think a particular thing, you may be subject to re-education of a sort, uh, which has some pretty dangerous uh, connotations. Nonetheless, a little-known world of unconscious bias training, which is used by many corporations, police departments, and other organizations to help address racism in the workplace. And Joshua Holt, who was unjustly detained in Venezuela for two years, arrived to a warm welcome in his home state of Utah. That was Monday night after meeting with President Donald Trump in Washington. Holt and his wife, Thammy, were um, greeted at Salt Lake City's International uh, Airport by a crowd uh, filled with family, friends, politicians who joined the couple and their daughter in the singing of the national anthem. A second homecoming celebration will take place in his hometown of Riverton City, Utah, where streets were lined with green ribbons on light poles and trees. Green is Holt's favorite color, the Salt Lake Tribune reported. And on this day in 2005, Danica Patrick, she became the first female driver to take the lead in the storied Indianapolis 500. We know what happened just recently. Anyway, in 1988, President Ronald Reagan arrives in Moscow for the fourth summit meeting held in the past three years with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Again, that's 88. And in 1953, Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzing Norgay, a Sherpa of Nepal, became the first explorers to reach the summit of Mount Everest is quite an accomplishment. Now, we're going to take a break here in a moment, but when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about the uh, summit that may or may not be happening with the president and Kim Jong-un, the uh, dictator of North Korea. We know that the preparations are being made in Singapore right now, but that could all change in a moment's notice. So we'll try to bring you up to date on what we do know. And then later in the program, in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Fred Lucas about what options are currently available, given all that's happened up to this point. 
and answer the question whether or not the president had a, uh, his announcement to cancel the summit was a miscalculation, if he was trying to buy time to be better prepared, or if this was the art of the deal, uh, which ultimately brought North Korea back to the table. So we'll get into that with him in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, President Trump said on Sunday that U.S. officials had arrived in North Korea for the summit between Kim Jong-un and myself, and perhaps the strongest indication that the much-anticipating meeting could be back on. Well, our United States, he said, our United States team has arrived in North Korea to make arrangements for the summit between Kim Jong-un and myself. I truly believe North Korea has brilliant potential and we will be a great economic and financial nation one day. Kim Jong-un agrees with me on this. It will happen, Trump tweeted. Well, a U.S. delegation is uh, in ongoing talks with North Korean officials in Pangmongjom, according to State Department spokesperson, in a statement about the meeting reported first by the Washington Post. We we continue to prepare for a meeting between the president and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Well, on Sunday morning, Mission uh, Missouri Senator rather Roy Blunt, a top Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, commended Trump for trying to get North Korea to meet and agree to dismantling its nuclear arsenal, but warned all sides must first agree on the terms and warned that tactics last week are right out of the North Korean playbook. We're in the three generations of that playbook now, he told Fox News Sunday. Well, act like you want to negotiate and come up with some outlandish view of what that negotiation means. Well, he suggests that tactics in an attempt to extract a concession in exchange for a promise that isn't kept. Well, Blunt also said all three sides, the United States, North Korea, and South Korea, must first agree on the terms of the summit, including what exactly is denuclearization of North Korea. And he lauded Trump, whose presidential campaign he supported for his efforts towards such an historic summit. I think the president has got the North Koreans in a place that any other president might not have managed to get done, Blunt said. He's very willing to reach out in new directions through the South Korean president, willing to meet with the North Korean president, but also willing to walk away. A meeting Saturday between Kim and South Korean President Moon Jae-in, a U.S. ally, renewed that optimism. Well, in fact, it was a surprise a turn of events. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met with the South Korean president Moon Jae-in in a demilitarized zone for the second time in a month on Saturday. They discussed the peace communi- uh, commitments rather they reached in their first summit. Well, the meeting came hours after the president suggested his um, meeting with Kim may still go ahead. Moon's office, who released photos of the meeting in which the two men are embracing, it looks like they're about to kiss one another, although I doubt that happened, said the leaders met on the North Korean side of the demilitarized zone in a village between 3 and 5 p.m. local time. The Blue House said Moon would personally announce the outcome of Saturday's summit on Sunday. Well, the two leaders reportedly spoke for two hours to frankly discuss how they could make the potential summit between Kim and Trump a success. Well, the meeting came hours after South Korea expressed relief over revived talks for the summit between the president of the United States and the dictator of North Korea following a withdrawal, a whirlwind 24 hours that saw the United States cancel that meeting. Well, in their first summit in April, Kim and Moon announced vague aspirations for a nuclear-free Korean peninsula and permanent peace, which Seoul has 
Obama's tried to sell as a meaningful breakthrough to set up the summit with Trump. But relations between the rival Koreas chilled in recent weeks with the North canceling the high-level meeting with Seoul over South Korean participation in regular military exercises with the U.S. and insisting that it will not return to talks unless the grievance is resolved. Well, they continued with their exercises, and now it appears that... uh, The grievance is sufficiently resolved that they're uh, potentially meeting at some point in June. Meanwhile, North Korea is holding up to 120,000 political prisoners in horrific conditions in camps across the country. That's according to estimates from a newly released State Department report. And we would hope that would be a part of the discussion that's going to be held should that summit take place. Well, the department on Tuesday issued its annual International Religious Freedom Report for 2017 that covers 200 countries and territories documenting religious freedom and human rights abuses. Well, the findings on North Korea came as the Trump administration is working to engage in those um, talks with the isolated regime. The White House says the administration continues to actively prepare for a possible summit with Kim Jong-un. Well, the report, though, addressed the brutal conditions festering inside Kim's kingdom. It revealed 1,304 cases of alleged religious freedom violations in the country last year, while detailing the harsh treatment of political and religious prisoners and persecution of Christians. The government continued to deal harshly with those who engaged in almost any religious practices through executions, tortures, beatings, and arrests, the report said. An estimated 80,000 to 120,000 political prisoners, some imprisoned for religious reasons, were believed to be held in the political prison camp system in remote areas under horrific conditions. We heard one of those accounts just recently. According to the report, Christian Solidarity Worldwide said there was a policy of guilt by association applied in cases of detentions of Christians, meaning that the relatives of Christians were also detained regardless of their beliefs. Religious and human rights groups outside the country continue to provide numerous reports that members of underground churches were arrested, beaten, tortured, and killed because of their religious beliefs, the report said. International NGOs, non-government organizations, by the way, and North Korean defectors report any religious activity conducted outside of those that were state-sanctioned, including praying, singing hymns, reading the Bible, could lead to severe punishment, including imprisonment in political prison camps. The report was released by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who underscored the Trump administration's commitment to promoting religious freedom around the world. And one wonders if that will be a part of what's discussed should this summit move forward. Religious freedom, the report went on to say, is in the American bloodstream. Pompeo, the State Department, said on Tuesday, the release of the report is critical to our mission to defend religious liberty and brings to light the state of religious freedom all over the world, or the absence of religious freedom. It's not clear whether the North Korean... Uh, North Korea, rather, um, the findings will affect talks over a potential summit between the president and Kim Jong-un. Last week, the president sent a letter to Kim canceling that uh, meeting, as we discussed earlier. This week, he, uh, Kim dispatched his infamous right-hand man, uh, Kim Jong-choi, to the U.S. and uh, amid diplomatic uh, a flurry of uh, aimed at salvaging the U.S.-North Korean summit. Kim Yong-choi is a longtime spy chief and vice chairman of the ruling Workers' Party and traveled to New York to meet with officials. Um, we have uh, put a great team together for our talks with North Korea. Meetings are currently taking place concerning the summit, the president said. But in light of these most recent findings, which are not surprising and echo what we've seen every year that this report has been issued, uh, one does hope and pray that these are issues that would be brought up at the time 
of the president's uh, summit with Kim Jong-un. Well, the White House has cracked down on unions with executive orders, which, of course, can be quite temporary depending on who wins the uh, the next election. President Trump issued a series of executive orders on Friday that could gut federal employee unions' ability to negotiate with agency leaders and represent workers, as well as reduce the time it takes for an agency to fire people for poor performance or misconduct. Well, billed as the first step toward broad civil service reform, senior administration officials announced in a a call with reporters on Friday afternoon, three executive orders aimed at making it easier to fire poor performers and ordering harsher treatment of union representatives. Today, the president is fulfilling his promise to promote a more efficient government by reforming civil service rules. That's a quote from Andrew Bremberg. He's the director of the president's Domestic Policy Council. He went on to say that every year the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey shows that less than one third of federal employees believe poor performers are adequately addressed by their agency. These executive orders make it easier to remove poor performing employees and ensure that taxpayer dollars are more efficiently used. Well, the first order is described by a senior administrator officials speaking on background would reduce the time it takes to fire poor performers and employees suspected of misconduct by standardizing the length of performance improvement plan at 30 days across government. Currently, uh, PIPs or the performance improvement plans vary from agency to agency and generally run between 60 to 120 days. Well, the uh, GAO report shows that it takes six months to a year to remove someone from government and can often take another nine months on appeal, the official said. Well, this also encourages agencies to fire someone for misconduct when they've been engaged in behavior that warrants it instead of just suspending them. Well, another executive order significantly curbs employees who are union representatives from using official time, a practice where the federal government compensates a worker for performing representational duties instead of their standard work. Official time recently has uh, come under fire, both from the Office of Personnel Management report and a hearing by the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Well, the order stipulates that union officials can spend no more than 25 percent of their work hours on official time. Additionally, it stipulates that official time can no longer be used to lobby Congress or to represent employees who have filed a grievance or are appealing an adverse personnel action. And it orders agencies to charge rent for union use of federal office space and cease covering expenses for official time-related travel. Well, the last order directs agencies to renegotiate collective bargaining agreements with federal unions and to ensure that process concludes within a year. It also orders OPM to develop a labor relations working group to analyze CBAs for what the administration described as wasteful provisions, and it requires the CBAs be published in a centralized public database for public scrutiny. Well, administration officials said they estimate the change to labor relations policies could save at least $100 million in taxpayer money. When asked about potential increased costs as a result of the decrease in official time, which is often used to mitigate disputes before a grievance or civil litigation is filed, an official claims such actions would actually decrease. Saying litigations and grievances, we expect those to be reduced quite substantially, although our cost savings estimate doesn't factor that in, the official said. Once those are factored in, the savings would be only increased, not 
decrease. Well, American Federation of Government Employees National President J. David Cox said in his statement, the executive orders are a direct assault on union members' legal rights. This is more than union busting. It's democracy busting, he went on to say. The president's executive orders do nothing to help federal workers do their jobs better. In fact, they do the opposite by depriving workers of their rights to address and resolve workplace issues such as sexual harassment, racial discrimination, retaliation against whistleblowers, improving workplace health and safety, enforcing reasonable accommodations for workers with disabilities, and so much more. Well, what it actually does is um, mean that that cannot be done on the taxpayer dollars during work time. We'll see what happens next. 32 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll tell you about uh, ABC's decision to cancel the very popular television program, Roseanne. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Fred Lucas. He's the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal. He's also co-host of The Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about the on-again, off-again, on-again summit with North Korea. What's next for the U.S. and the North Korean summit, and what are the options? We'll get into that with him in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also talk with Leslie Fields. She is the author of The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. Well, just hours after Roseanne Barr posted a racist tweet about former President Obama's aide, uh, Valerie Jarrett, her widely popular reboot of Roseanne was given the boot. ABC Entertainment President Channing Dungy said in a statement on, uh, well, today that the network would not be producing the show's second season. Apparently they'll finish the first, it sounds like. Roseanne's Twitter statements uh, statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values, and we have decided to cancel her show. Now, it's interesting that there are others who have made similar uh, statements on the left who haven't received the same, with the exception of Alec Baldwin, who had a program that was immediately canceled after he made uh, remarks that were anti-homosexual. Uh, the only other example I could think of. Anyway, a representative for Barr didn't return requests for comments, but they have dropped her as well. Well, the news comes after she uh, went into emergency damage control mode after sending out a politically charged tweet linking Chelsea Clinton to uh, George Soros and a radically charged tweet saying something about Valerie Jarrett, I will not repeat because it was racist. Well, the latter uh, led to an almost immediate mea culpa and a vow to never tweet again. She thought she was being funny, which is a trap that many comedians fall into on Twitter. I apologize to Valerie Jarrett and to all Americans. She wrote, I am truly sorry for making a bad joke about her politics and her looks. I should have known better. Forgive me. My joke uh, was in bad taste. She tweeted after writing she was quitting Twitter. Well, little did she know she was also going to be quitting her show because they're not producing a second season. Her account was um, deactivated for a period of time before reappearing with an old tweet with a glowing New York Times review of her highly rated Roseanne reboot pinned to the top of her Twitter feed. Well, Barr's co-star Sarah Gilbert shared her disappointment uh, in the uh, comedian's tweet, as did others uh, who are also co-starring in the program and no longer have a job because of her careless tweet. Barr's political views caused a headache for uh, ABC, despite many crediting the 65-year-old's pro-Trump stance as a reason for the show's success. She opened up about the backlash over her conservative views on Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show back in April. Oh, yeah, she said. People are mad about that, but, you know, I don't—well— 
I won't repeat what she said because I don't talk like that. But she um, has been pretty open about depicting her iconic TV character as a working class Trump supporter. I mean, everybody had to choose for themselves, she said, of the election, according to their own conscience, uh, who they felt was the lesser of two evils. She said that was back in uh a couple months ago, speaking of the 2016 election, you know, everybody chose that. So I'm not going to put anybody down who didn't vote like me. This is America. It's a free country. And when you weigh it all together, I just felt like we needed a whole new thing all the way bottom to top. End quote. Well, Herman Cain, who you might recall was a 2012 GOP presidential candidate, says that Walt Disney's ABC network was looking for a reason to cancel the conservative-leaning sitcom Roseanne and found one when she tweeted a racist comment, giving them a pretext to do just that. The politically charged reboot uh, premiered on ABC in March it, uh, with its pilot episode garnering an audience of more than 18 million. That dropped off after the second episode, making it TV's biggest premiere so far this year. Herman Cain said ABC executives likely didn't expect the show or its support for President Donald Trump to be so popular and needed to find a reason to get rid of it. From my perspective, this is a teachable moment. You can ruin your career with a tweet. Uh, Greg Gutfeld made the comment in a, an interview earlier today that uh, Twitter has become the global HR it's always there. You make a mistake. You don't have to go through, uh, you know, at the Christmas party where you misbehave and you lose your job. Now you uh, you write something on Twitter and it could cost you everything. It's a good uh, teachable moment for young people as well as so-called mature adults who feel that Twitter is somehow a place to say whatever you please with the expectation that either you're going to be considered funny uh, for being inappropriate or no one will care that much. Meanwhile, the wireless industry is in a race to roll out 5G service. Now, think about it. The network's supposed to be up to 100 times faster than current data speeds, but it requires cell phone tower equipment to be closer to users than before. Closer to the ground, in other, wor- in the other words, and more of them. Wireless companies in the U.S. say that they're going to have to install some 300,000 new antennas, roughly equal to the total number of cell towers built over the past three decades. Now, that's causing outrage and some alarm in some neighborhoods hoods as antennas go up around homes. Well, at a lab in New York, some of the entrepreneurs of, uh, uh, who are developing these tools to run to the next generation of wireless technology um, are excited about the prospects, others not so much. Well, the CEO of, let's see, it's Arvizio, said 5G service is extremely important to the company's vision. His product allows users in different locations to interact with 3D images projected through a lens. Today, we can do this using Wi-Fi technology and we can do it using landline technology. But of course, you're then tied to particular locations. With 5G, now we can begin to extend this. So we can actually begin to start doing this on building sites. We can start doing this um, in the factory floor. So it really opens up a whole new world. But before that uh, world can become reality, this one needs to change. 5G requires the installation of new equipment all across the country. Every wireless company is currently working on building its own 5G network, um, says uh, one uh, leader from AT&T. If it's not already in your neighborhood, it's coming. You'll begin to see them. She said 5G uses high frequency waves that support faster speeds, but don't travel as far as current wireless frequencies. So instead of relying on large cell phone towers spread far apart, they need small sites uh, that are more uh, that are closer together. 
Uh, we're going to use our existing infrastructure today, whether it's light poles, whether it's street lights. So we're going to make sure that we don't make it obtrusive to your to our customers, rather, and to the citizens, she says. Yet some don't share that enthusiasm. There are health concerns. Well, the cell towers are called small cell towers for obvious reasons, but they're not so small uh, when they're in your backyard. So says uh, one protester, Donna Barron. She's protesting plans to convert light poles in her Montgomery County, Maryland neighborhood into small cell sites. This will cause cancer, she says. She was one of several people who raised health concerns about the radiation emitted by the equipment at a government hearing last month. Well, cell, cell phone equipment, rather, does emit radiation, but research on its health effects has been inconsistent. According to the National Cancer Institute, a limited number of studies have shown some evidence of statistical association of cell phone use and brain tumor risk. But most studies have found no association. Well, if Barron loses the fight, she says she'll uh, consider moving. Either way, she fears property values could plummet when 5G equipment pops up. It could drop 20%, she fears, for that house, that house, that house. And then pretty soon you go around the curb and there's another cell tower. They're all through this neighborhood, so it's going to devastate the neighborhood. She's predicting. We don't know that for sure, but it could. uh, If, in fact, there's a link um, discovered. Well, Arnaldi, she she insists her work has focused on safety, pointing out that, and that's with AT&T, uh, pointing out that uh, they live and work near this equipment, too. Although she doesn't have any 5G antenna in her neighborhood yet, she says it's coming soon, and she's absolutely comfortable with that. Well, wireless carriers have announced plans to roll out 5G service to a handful of cities later this year. But to really take advantage, you'll need a 5G-enabled device, which probably won't be available until next year. Meanwhile, the research goes on to determine whether or not it does, in fact, pose a health risk. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, California is debuting their digital license plates. Yes, you heard me correctly. Digital license plates. Well, the uh, dramatic new license plate is hitting the streets. A digital display board that allows changeable messages controlled by the driver or remotely by fleet managers. Now, that seems like a bad idea, but we'll, we'll learn more. Well, the new plates use the same computer technology as Kindle ebook readers, along with a wireless communication system. They come with their own computer chips and batteries. Well, motorists who choose to buy the plates can register their vehicles electronically, eliminate the need for physical stickers or tags on their license plates every year. They also can uh, display personal messages if the DMV decides to allow that function. Well, if the car is stolen, the plates stolen rather, the plates manufactured. Manufacturers say that the plate can uh, tell the owner and police exactly where the car is. I would guess if you're going to steal a car, the first thing you would do would be to disable the plate. But that's another matter. Anyway, police um, say they can determine exactly where the car is or at least where the license plate is if it uh, has been detached. California has been quietly prepping for this rollout this year. Uh, They're the first state to try out this new plate. The State Department of Motor Vehicles is conducting a pilot project with eBay um, area company, uh, which makes the plates and is about to begin marketing for the sale at auto dealerships. Well, last week, Sacramento became the first city to agree to test these plates, taking a shipment of some 24 for its in-house vehicle fleet. The technology comes with a high price. Um, It's already prompted questions about privacy and safety. Do you hack into somebody's license plate? And can you... 
um, display information that the driver or the owner of the vehicle would not approve. Well, dealerships are expected to sell the plates for $699, not including installation costs, and users have to pay a monthly fee of about $7. The plates aren't available through the DMV uh, yet. Well, some drivers are questioning whether the device's communication system could allow the state, the police, or private companies to track a driver's movements. I mean, we already have enough uh, ways to do that. In a recent blog posting, Alex Roy, an editor of the Drive website, raised those and other questions. What little privacy we have left is annihilated, he wrote. This makes sense for fleet management. For my personal car, no thanks. Well, <clears throat> Neville Boston, founder of uh, Reviver Auto, says... Um, He expects initial interest to come from companies for their vehicle fleets. Some businesses will use them as mini billboards to advertise their products or services, he said. But will they be able to do so only when the vehicle is stopped? The license plate number will uh, still appear on the screen when uh, messages pop up, but uh, it will be smaller and tucked into the upper right-hand corner of the screen. So if there's an incident and you're trying to identify the driver, it may be more difficult if they're also displaying some other kind of message. Well, DMV officials declined last week to answer uh, questions about the state's plan for the new plates, saying they're just uh, testing the new product. The purpose of the pilot is to identify and detail potential benefits, so we're still in the evaluation phase and won't make any determination until the pilot concludes. Rather interesting in California. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court today allowed Arkansas to enforce a law restricting medication abortions, rejecting an appeal from Planned Parenthood affiliates in that state. Well, Planned Parenthood had asked the high court to review an appeals court ruling on the abortion pill rules and reinstate a lower court order that had blocked them from taking effect. Well, the law in question says doctors who provide abortion pills must hold a contract with another physician who is ad- with admitting privileges at a hospital and would agree to handle and treat complications. Well, the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals had reversed a court order blocking enforcement of the law, but put that rule on hold as Planned Parenthood appealed to the Supreme Court. Well, the legal battle continues, but Arkansas at this point is allowed to enforce the law. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops. Meanwhile, the Irish referendum from equal protection of the unborn to a charter for abortion. The proposed legal regime to follow last week's vote paves the way to abortion on request, as they say it there, on demand, as we say it here, a revolutionary change for the Catholic country. Ireland is one of... uh, Few European countries whose laws protect unborn children, or rather protected, as a result of last Friday's referendum on abortion, that will soon change. The equal protection that Ireland's laws afforded them is set to be replaced by permissive abortion legislation. The Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution was passed in 1983, largely to block any judicial intervention as a constitutional right to abortion, as in Roe versus Wade. Well, that amendment, amendment rather, declared that the state acknowledged the right to life of the unborn. And with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother guaranteed in its laws to respect and as far as practicable to defend and vindicate that right. Ireland stood out as a beacon of equal protection under the law. But last Friday, the electorate voted two to one in favor of replacing that amendment with a provision allowing the Irish parliament to enact legislation to regulate abortion. Well, before that vote, the government published its general scheme of a bill to regulate termination of pregnancy. There was and remains much confusion about what that proposed bill would allow if enacted. What then are the grounds for abortion under this bill? Well, abortion on request, as they put it, until the 12th week of pregnancy. Well, the bill would allow the termination 
termination of a pregnancy that is uh, in the reasonable good faith opinion of a doctor had not exceeded 12 weeks. Now, this would allow a single doctor to grant the request of a woman for abortion for any reason. In short, abortion on request, as they put it, abortion on demand, as we do. Also, abortion from the 12th week to viability, the 24th week, because of a risk to the life of health, is also written into the bill. It would also allow abortions if, in the reasonable good faith opinion of two doctors, there was a risk to the life of or serious harm to the physical or mental health of a pregnant woman. Now, it's a little different from the the language here that allows abortion for virtually any reason, but this is a bit more explicit. The unborn child was not viable under that, uh, if the child was not viable under this rule, and it was appropriate to, a term, to terminate to avert that risk. Appropriate in quote, quotes rather. The bill requires merely belief in a risk of life or, or of serious harm to physical or mental health, not a serious risk. There is a risk um, to life and of serious harm to uh, health whenever we drive a car or cycle. There is a risk of life and of serious harm to physical or mental health in every pregnancy. What then would prevent two doctors from granting any request for an abortion between the 12th and 24th week if they thought it appropriate, again in quotes, to terminate in order to eliminate a risk? Well, that's the big question. Um, and it's not altogether clear. Also, defenders of the eighth claimed, and that's the amendment to their constitution, that the bill would legalize abortion up to six months. Well, the Irish health minister responded that this claim was disgraceful, entirely misleading and a big lie. He said the bill would allow abortion after 12 weeks only in exceptional and strictly controlled circumstances, which I've outlined. That claim that the bill would legalize abortion up to six months is accurate. The fact Uh, That the bill would not allow abortion on request between the 12th and 24th week does not mean it would not be legal. Uh, It would not rather legalize abortion during that period. The British Abortion Act of 1967 does not permit abortion on request at any period of pregnancy. But to deny that act legalized abortion would be absurd. It is indeed the minister's claim that abortion would be allowed only in exceptional and strictly controlled circumstances. That stands on pretty Shaky ground. Abortion from viability, which is the 24th week until birth, if immediately necessary to avert an immediate risk, is also permitted. And if the baby has a condition likely to cause death, that's a second ground for abortion until birth, would apply if two doctors certified their reasonable opinion that there was a condition affecting the fetus, as they refer to the developing human unborn child, that is likely to lead to the death of the unborn child, either before or shortly after birth. Defenders of the eighth displayed uh, posters of children with Down syndrome Hmm. to make the point that in Britain, most such babies are aborted. Sadly, that's my editorial comment. Uh, Anyway, that is essentially uh, the law that passed in Ireland. Sadly, it has devolved uh, into the League of Nations that now permit the abortion of their unborn sons and daughters. 59 minutes after 4 o'clock, almost 5 o'clock. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And then at 5, uh, we'll talk with, or at least after news and traffic, with Fred Lucas on the On Again, Off Again uh, Summit with North Korea and Leslie Fields, the author of The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, while North Korea remains a pretty unpredictable country, lawmakers and foreign policy experts are seeing a narrow way forward after President Trump on Thursday canceled the planned summit with the dictator Kim Jong-un. Well, that summit was set for the 12th of June in Singapore, but Kim for weeks apparently had threatened to cancel it. And more recently, a North Korean official personally insulted Vice President Mike Pence. Well, here to talk with us about the on-again, off-again summit with North Korea is Fred Lucas. He is the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the uh, uh, what's next for the U.S.-North Korea summit. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, let me ask you what you think about the president's decision to make a public announcement that the summit was going to be canceled last week. Was this a blunder? Was he simply buying time to become better prepared? Or was this part of his strategy, if you will, uh, in uh, trying to get North Korea back to the table? Well, I I think uh, a, a big part of it is that uh, the week before, uh, which would be two weeks now, but about a week before he made this announcement, uh, the uh, United States had sent, uh, sent a, an advance team to Singapore to meet with an advance team from North Korea. Uh, and the North Korean advance team did not show up. Uh, and this included a fairly some high-level White House officials in this advance team. So, so it was a no small deal. Uh, I think that there was somewhat of a fear that uh, uh, the same thing might have happened if President Trump had shown up, that Kim Jong-un would have just been a no-show. Uh, and also there was, of course, a history here mm-hmm. of North Korean government just being uh, playing a lot of games. And uh, it was beginning to look like maybe that's what this was. But uh, uh, with Trump, he had said many times that uh, he was willing to walk away. Uh, at, at the same time, Kim was constantly threatening to cancel the meeting, cancel the meeting, cancel the meeting. And as it turned out, uh, President Trump canceled it before Kim Jong-un had the formal chance to cancel it. And, uh, when it appeared very unlikely to happen at that early of a day. Well, he essentially called his bluff. Right. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, coverage on the fact that the president canceled the summit, but not much uh, discussion about the fact that the United States team had already been stood up in Singapore, which may have given it a little more uh, much needed context for what happened and why. That, that, that is actually, yeah, and uh, that's something that, that actually came out in a uh, background briefing that administration officials gave to reporters that day uh, off camera background briefing, but uh, yeah, and in which they talked about the, the fact that this advanced team meeting was supposed to happen. And then that that, that might have, I, I think, was the, the biggest headline out of that briefing because that, that was a surprise and that was I, I, a fairly shocking move. I, I think perhaps uh, if you wanted to criticize the administration out of something there, it might have been that they waited as long as they did after being stood up mm-hmm. by the North Koreans because that was a, a, a rather insulting thing. I mean, for North Korea, uh, considering what they have to gain from this meeting, uh, uh, meaning economically and joining to some degree, to, to the degree possible for them joining the, uh, the rest of the world mm-hmm. uh, in, in a more civilized way, um, they're, they're, 
their potential in missing out on a big opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, you um, are the White House correspondent for the Daily Signal, and in a piece that you wrote titled What's Next, you offer three possible scenarios on uh, North Korea after cancellation of the president's trip. Now, we know now that one high-level official is on his way, if not already, in Washington Mm -hmm. to resume some kind of uh, communication. But let's talk about these three options that you wrote about that I think give us some idea what we might expect to see or hear next. The Uh first option that you suggest is a nuclear-to-nuclear showdown, and you quote a a, a North Korean official uh, making that point that, um, uh, that, you know, that's that's still something that they have thought uh, could happen. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, the most unlikely. Um, I Mm -hmm. think everybody can hope it's the most unlikely. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that the North Koreans are still talking about. Uh, It's still... Uh, it, it seems like for a while the Kim Jong Un himself was a little less belligerent in making these kind of crazy threats. Uh, but of course, this uh, North Korean official would not have made this threat had he not been authorized yes. by uh, by Kim Jong Un. Uh, he, uh, as, as one of the experts I talked to for this piece, said uh, if, if that official made un- that as an un- unauthorized comment, he wouldn't be here anymore. Yeah, <laughs> in yeah. North Korea. So. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty clear that that was authorized. That they uh, uh, that they just decided to turn up the rhetoric, uh, insult the vice president, and also make this uh, threat about another nuclear to nuclear showdown. Uh, of course, the the more likely one, considering that there are continued talks, and the president's t- t- talked about continuing negotiations here, is that there will be another summit mm-hmm. sometime down the road. Um, president Trump talked about that. In his uh, speech about this last Thursday, and so um, you know there, there's a decent chance of that. Uh, Congressman Jeff Hensling was at the White House for an unrelated event, but the, he uh, spoke about how we've made some progress and that we've seen this in the past with negotiations. Um, uh, when, when the congressman at the White House uh, talked about similarities with uh, the Soviets, how it was over a long drawn out process. Uh so I I think uh you know with with multiple Soviet leaders in that case. But uh uh this isn't the exact same thing, but um uh the the entire timeline on this, I mean it seems so sudden to start with. I I, I think uh you saw this in March late February, March, in which they announced that there would be some type of meeting uh and then all of a sudden it was this is going to happen in June. Diplomatically, that's incredibly fast. So, so I, I, I think uh, the the fact that it's not happening, it's probably puts puts things on a more um, more conventional. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Diplomatic track. Yeah, yeah. The third option that you um, yeah. mention is maximizing maximum pressure. And uh, we'll, yeah. I wanted to talk about that and what uh, Congress is already doing to make that, with the auto uh, warm beer uh, legislation, what they're doing to make that something that could be applied fairly quickly. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, yeah, uh, the president talked about we're going to continue maximum pressure. Uh, other folks have um, said, Maximum pressure, maximum pressure is, is, is like a, a nice buzzword. Uh, but but the fact is, uh, we don't currently have uh, maximum pressure, either maximum diplomatic pressure or maximum financial pressure on North Korea right now. The Otto Wambier, uh 
Act that, that passed the House almost unanimously, 415 to 2, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Auto Lumbier North Korean Nuclear Sanctions Act, uh, would basically lay out the choice. Uh, you either do business with North Korea or do business with the U.S., and you can't do both. Uh, now, there would probably be some uh, weeping and wailing from uh, some of our ally countries on that, but at, at the end of the day, if they made the choice, that they would most assuredly pick the U.S., and uh, so, so, so that's one area where, if uh, if the Senate chooses to take that up, that, that's something that could theoretically pretty easily pass. Uh, it, the the only issue there, I think, is that um, uh, perhaps the Senate would fear that this might uh, endanger the negotiations mm-hmm. that we're in right now. So they might postpone voting on it to see what happens in the near right. term. Now, this uh, number two man from North Korea that's either in or making his way to Washington uh, right now to uh, presumably um, restart the negotiations for uh, talk. How optimistic are you that this will result in uh, moving in the right direction toward a summit? Or is this just um, something that they're doing for uh, the the, the optics of it? Oh, it's a little bit of both. I uh, I think that the fact that um, uh, they're they're doing anything at all, mm-hmm. and that North Korea even worries about optics is uh, says something. Uh, says that there is some type of progress out there, and and I think that perhaps that um, Kim Jong Un knows now that the Trump administration won't be begging them for a meeting. Yeah. I, I, um, I, you know, I, I think that there is a decent chance that there was all this talk that President Trump did seem, and, and perhaps understandably so, he actually seems excited at times about going into the summit uh, and excited about what could happen. Uh, and, and perhaps uh, Kim Jong-un inferred the wrong message from that. Yeah. After first uh, realizing that there was a credible threat uh of a response from the U.S., which there was not under, uh, or he didn't think there was under the Obama administration, uh, he was willing to negotiate with this with the Trump administration. Then, after um, perhaps he took the wrong message after seeing uh, Trump's enthusiasm that he could uh, bend him a little bit more, Trump canceling this meeting, calling the bluff, uh, might might move things along a little bit more. I, I, I think it's just a ne- another step in negotiating and tough negotiating, but that's supposed yeah. to be uh, what Trump is good at. So. Now, one final question before our time is up. Uh, one of the things the president made reference to in canceling the meeting was that since Kim Jong-un had met with uh, Chinese, that his attitude uh, had changed. Uh, some are also suggesting that uh, thinking about the implications of some of the things that uh, the North Korean leader seems to be willing to do, that those who surround him, who are much older, more experienced and predate his uh, assumption of leadership uh, served under his father, may be pressuring him as well, if that's possible under a dictatorship. Your thoughts on uh, other influences that may have led to the kind of bravado that we heard from North Korea um, in, in more recent days? Yeah, there there there, is, uh, there has been a lot of talk about what, what kind of role China plays, and I think China is just themselves are sort of stuck between a, a rock and a hard place about where they want to go here because they it's sort of they consider it in their interest to keep this regime in place and not have a um, 
Um, they're, they're, they're concerned about a long-term uh, move towards some unified Korea that, that could be a, a, a challenge, a regional challenge, uh, economically speaking, uh, to uh, China. But uh, they, also, they also don't want this un, unstable uh, dictator with uh, nuclear weapons threatening the entire region. So, uh, but 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 it does it does seem like that there had been these talks uh, in which um, there was a reversal. However, that said, that said, uh, Trump very much credited Xi at one point uh, uh, with pressuring North Korea mm-hmm. to come to the table. So, um, I mean, we we might even be seeing uh, as. You as you mentioned about North Korea, some some inner conflict there. We might be seeing some inner conflict within China as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, Fred Lucas, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thanks for Appreciate having it me on. Very much. Again, Fred Lucas is the White House correspondent for the Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Leslie Fields. She's the author of The Wonder Years: Forty Women Over Forty on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've got news for you. We're all getting older. Quite frankly, it's not a bad thing. But how do you make the second half of your life the best half? 40 incredible women of faith from 40 to 85 tackle aging, anxieties, Head on. And they upend those notions with compelling first-person stories full of humor, sass, and spiritual wisdom. I'm talking about the book, The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. Well, these respected authors, um, uh, they offer some much-needed Well, guidance uh, on aging uh, gracefully, but for doing so honestly, faithfully, and with eyes open to wonder and deep theology along the way. Each essay illuminates biblical values and provides insight into God's perspective on these latter years and reminds readers that it's possible to serve the kingdom of God and his people even better with a little extra life experience to guide you. The Wonder Years is an inspiring and unforgettable guide for anyone wishing to embrace the wonder of life after 40, and for that matter, before 40. Well, Leslie Leland Fields is an award-winning author and editor of 11 books, including Crossing the Waters, Forgiving Our Fathers and Mothers, and Surviving the Island of Grace. She serves as the editorial board, or rather on the editorial board of Christianity Today. She speaks internationally on matters of faith, writing, parenting, and forgiveness, and she's the founder of the Harvester Island Wilderness Workshop. Uh, She lives in Kodiak, Alaska with her family, and you can find her blog at Leslie um, Leland Fields. Dot com. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Hi, Georgine. It's wonderful to be with you. Now, what compelled you to write about women who had reached their 40s and beyond? Oh, okay. So I remember when I turned 40, and even though I had four small children then, I was just struck. I just sort of stopped dead in my tracks. You know, I knew, okay, I'm not young anymore. I'm heading into the middle years. And then after that, I'm going to be an old woman. And I started thinking about what kind of old woman Hmm. I wanted to become. And, you know, as I looked around me and as I looked um, at the media, at, at older women in the media, I could see maybe some 
older women I didn't want to become. <laughs> and, and I realized that, you know, the only way we're going to get there to become the women God wants us to be when we're 70 and 80 and 90 is to like, we have to start now. You know, it's not going to happen by accident. It can only happen by intention. So I started looking around for a book or, you know, someone talking about this specifically from a, a woman's perspective. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't find anything. So I, I just kind of shelved that idea. And then 10 years went by like, bam, you know how they do. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> Sadly, I do. <laughs> yes, 10 years flew by. So now I'm 50 and I'm looking around and this book still isn't out there. And now I turned 60 and now the book is in my hand. So it finally happened. Well, I am facing my 62nd, is that right? 62nd birthday? Oh my goodness, it sounds so <laughs> ominous. Uh, coming up next month, so I was especially grateful that there is a book written to help us kind of think through and plan for those latter years. When we're younger, we're encouraged to really think through, you know, what course do you want your life to take? Mm-hmm. And then given our culture, we're kind of, well, from this point on, it's just, <laughs> it's all downhill and whatever happens, happens. Right. But you're suggesting right. we ought to approach this season of life, which God graciously permits some of us to enjoy uh, more intentionally. Yes, absolutely. I really believe that the second half of our life can be the best half of our life. And so there, there are 40 women I mean, here, just really amazing, wise women, you know, some really famous women like Ann Voskamp and Lauren Winner and Joni Erickson, Johnny Erickson Tata and Elizabeth Elliot, some of these really yes. um, wise women who show us that you can, we can remain fruitful and full of the Spirit, I mean, all the way until the end. There's one woman in here, her name is Wynne Couchman, and she wrote this essay when she was in her early 80s, and, and the, even the title of her essay just oh, just speaks peace to me. The title is The Grace to Be Diminished. And in her essay, she talks about giving, about being in her early 80s, about giving up the balcony seats at church that she and her husband always sat in for decades, but it it became kind of too risky to climb those stairs. And then she talks about giving up her car keys, Mm. which is something we all kind of fear, I think, in the back of our mind. It's like, that's like giving up your independence. It's like giving up your freedom. But she says this most beautiful thing. She says, um, at the end, she said, the outward appearance becomes secondary to a far more endearing beauty and strength. The physical appearance of youth may be gone, but the capacity to love, experience, enjoy, share, and create, grow even stronger. And she says, as she gives things, these things up, God brings more of himself. He reveals himself more and more to her. And she actually died um, from between when I started this book and when I finished it. So I think about the sweetness of that, of how when she said, you know, I'm, I'm giving up all these things, but God gives me more. He keeps giving me more of himself. So that, that really helps to take away, I think, some of our fears. Oh, absolutely, because in our culture, youth and inexperience are valued and prized 
far more yes. than uh, than maturity and experience. Yes. And, and so we are, are led to think that, you know, if I no longer look a certain way, if I no right. longer have a certain capacity, and I've thought about this a lot myself, is there an expiration date? Is it my usefulness winding down? And this this book really encourages us to to consider that God doesn't abandon us at this point. In fact, there's a richness that, that comes along with the aging process that we um, can't even imagine in our younger years. That's for sure. And, you know, the thing is, we have all these years, we have decades behind us, we have all this experience. And I have heard from women who say, you know, who are kind of facing the empty nest. So they're in their 50s. And, you know, and I talk to them and they say like, yeah, but I, what can I, what can I do now? You know, I haven't done anything except raise my children. And I'm like, yeah, you raise your children. Do you know what that gives you? That gives you a PhD in, you know, the culinary arts, in organizational management, in human psychology and development. There's so much experience and wisdom that comes even, you know, if we just choose that one thing to look at raising children, let alone, you know, all the other spheres of our lives. So God wants to use all of it now in this in the second half and in the latter part of our of our years. Now this is a, a very interesting collaboration. You've mentioned some of the names: uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, Lucy Shaw is a contributor, Madeline Lang is a, a contributor, um, Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, just some uh, incredible. Uh, women, and I think most of us would love to sit at their feet and gain from their wisdom, from their vantage point, uh, you know, a bit ahead of us looking back. And this is a compilation that gives us that opportunity. Yes, for sure. You know, um, I, I've talked to women who, who say, too, they say, you know, my, my mother is my hero. She, you know, she's 80 and she's still doing this and that. And But, you know, not all of us have these um, these older role models in our lives, you know, godly women who are still loving and serving God, and lots of us don't. And so, and that's what this book is. It brings these women right into our right into our living room, right into our kitchen. So we do get to sit with them and hear from them, and and they they are cheering us on. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about the book, The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. And these are all subjects that we care deeply about, uh, certainly in our younger years, but as we mature as well. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with author Leslie Leyland Field. She is the author most recently, uh, the editor, I should say, of The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. Now, the book comes in three thematic uh, sections, firsts, lasts, and always. Describe for our listeners how the book is arranged and the storyline that runs throughout. Yeah, yeah, I think this is really important. So this isn't just like a jumble of essays, blah, you know, here it is, dump it in your lap. It's it's um, in three sections. So the first one is called First, and this is about um, this is about women over forty who have um, started new new ventures, moved to new places, taken on new ministries, just who are doing things for the first time because. 
we, you know, Georgie, we we can often think, oh, gee, I'm I'm too old to do that, or I can't mm-hmm. I can't do something I've never done before, and and that's not true. We we God is always I think calling us into into new things and yes. new adventures. Yes. Yeah. So in in this section, um, we have um, a woman who uh, lived in the suburbs her whole life. She and her husband both, and in her mid forties, she and her husband bought moved to a horse farm, and. Um, she became an, an accomplished equestrian around 50. And, and the reason she did this is her youngest daughter needed um, equine therapy. And so she and her daughter really just sort of took on this new thing together. And then it led to a ministry that she still has to this day of bringing inner, inner city kids out to her farm and teaching them to ride horses and, and to care for God's creation. So that was just a complete change of direction um, for her. And um, there's a woman in here, Lucy Shaw. Some people may know her name. She's quite well known. Mm-hmm. She's about 90 now. Um, but she wrote an essay, Rowing into the Wild, about going on a wilderness, a 10-day wilderness canoeing adventure at the age of 71. And and that meant camping every night, you know, paddling every day with, with 10 other people and camping every night and usually in the rain. <laughs> but um, she just, it was sort of a testing her spirit and testing her body and she says some marvelous things about in that essay about how we need we continually need a new and fresh lens on life so we don't get tired and get tired of seeing and so so that's what's happening um in the in the first mm-hmm. section and then the next section is called lasts and this means this is about um you know, when we get older, God still has new things for us, but there are also things that we can let go of. And, you know, we're older, we're a little smarter, we're a little wiser, and we suddenly realize, you know, I think it's about time I got rid of perfectionism. <laughs> I think it's about time I got rid of regret, that kind of regret that just sort of clings to me and, and slows me down, and, and let go of not being good enough. So these are, there are 14 essays here from, from women who are writing about the things that they, they can just absolutely let go of. Um, and, and Paul himself writes about that, you know, kind of letting go of the, the weights that hinder us. So, so these women show us, um, show us how to do that and some of the things that we can definitely let go of. And, the last section is called always. So we think about, okay, God brings us into new adventures and new seasons and new ministries. And then he lets us let go of some of the old things that, that, that slow us down. Now, what, what is left? What do we, what will we cling to? What do we vow that we will cling to all of our days, no matter how old we are, no matter what, God strips away from us as, as we age. And so there's a, a woman here named Gina Oxner who writes this beautiful essay called A Pilgrim in Progress. And she writes about going to Eastern Europe um, kind of as a spiritual pilgrim. And she's going to 
this this place where where thousands of people come every year, a, a site of kind of a, where a miracle once took place, and 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 she writes about always being a pilgrim. She's in her fifties, and she said, you know, I thought when I got to my fifties, I thought maybe I would like know it all, have it all, like be all, be, be, you know, be set, be done. And she said, I, I was like, I'm so glad it's not like that. And she vows to always remain a pilgrim, to always be seeking after God. And I love that. Yeah. One of the running jokes that I have uh, right about now is I tell my friends, I thought by now I would be more mature, I'd be smarter. You know, it really must come at 62. When that birthday comes, then it's all going to be res- <laughs> all going to be resolved. You know, one of the things I appreciate about uh, about your book, The Wonder Years, is that you uh, draw on um, elderly women. We don't hear much from them. And I think we need to value their insight and their experience far more than we do. And to call our attention to some of these women, some who've now passed on since the book has been published, and to hear what they have to say from their vantage point, the thing that we aspire to, um, I think is really meaningful. And I think it reminds us of the treasure that we are surrounded by, uh, yeah. women who have lived a long life and have some insight. Oh, absolutely, Georgine. And we, our culture does not value, you know, we talked about Mm -hmm. this before, our culture does not value age and experience and wisdom. But, um, you know, in Titus, in the book of Titus, it says that older women are to teach the younger women. And we don't have a culture that, that is, is really practicing that. And, and that's one of my, that's one of my aims. Um, in this book is that this is we have older women here um, teaching younger women and showing them and illuminating them this is what a faithful godly life looks like after 40. Yeah well the uh, is there one essay that you uh, appreciated or, or enjoyed the most? One person that perhaps you connected with that made the most impact which is a tough question with this lineup. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How can I choose yeah, which one? one of your kids That's... do you like best? <laughs> That's so mean. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know what? I'm going to mention Anne Voskamp. She has a piece in here. It's called, How Can I Not Keep Reaching Out? And Anne is one of the younger writers in this book. I think Anne now is about 45, but this essay is about turning 40. And she writes about the day of her birthday. And, you know, our birthdays should be happy days, but this day of turning 40 was not a happy day. A very dear friend of hers who was also in her 40s was dying and was just entering hospice care. And, And another friend, one of her close friends, her son, just decided that he was an atheist and so Anne is just processing, just grieving, you know, this this life, this life that, that is where where death is all around us and brokenness is all around us. And and she asks, How do we live? How do we live with with all of this around us? And toward the end of the essay, she she goes into uh into the garden and she cuts some fresh flowers and she puts them in a mason jar. And she drives them to a nursing home uh, down the road from her and, and brings the flowers to, um, to the people there. And, and the title again is, How Can I Not Keep Reaching Out? 
And I think that action, sometimes we don't know the answer to that question. Why is the world so broken? Why is there so much dying around us? But she illuminates for us how even when we don't know all the answers, we can keep reaching out. We can go cut those flowers. We can go bring meals to people. We can keep loving um, people. Um, no matter, you know, in the midst of our own of our own brokenness. So I, I think that's definitely one of my favorite essays. Mm. I have to tell you, generally, when you do an interview like this, you read the book from cover to cover. But I find myself reading one of the essays, and I, I stop, and I had to think and pause and and yeah. think about my future. I didn't get all the way through the book because this is a book you want to ponder and it mm-hmm. it has an impact on your heart. And I would suggest any woman who is over 40, and for that matter, those who anticipate and aspire mm-hmm. to reach 40, this is a great book to help us think about the whole of our lives, not just the early years, not just the middle years, but throughout um, until the end when God calls us home. The book yeah. is titled The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. And this is my birthday present to myself is to (laughs) spend some time going through the remainder of these essays and really thinking about what is God saying to me and what what is he calling me to in these latter years? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Georgine. And there, um, I just wrote a study guide for it. I, I, there's Ah. not a study guide in the book, but so many women wrote and said, Hey, our, our small group, or our book group is going to do this book. Do you have a study guide? And so I, I took a few days and sat down. So there's now a study guide on my website. Um, on just go to my my website lustlylandfields.com, and then you'll, there's a book page, and then you'll see the Wonder Years. And so there's a whole um, a whole study guide that'll take you through. And you're exactly right. This isn't something that you just sort of zoom through. You mm-hmm. have to. Just reflect, and and I think it would be so cool to have a group of other women to yeah. go to go through the book with. Yeah. yeah, I would agree, and I think if I were to choose a word to describe the book, I would say joy, because it reminds us that right up until the very end. Jesus is not leaving or forsaking us. We are useful. There is purpose in the days that he's given us. And it brings me joy to think about what lays ahead rather than that kind of fear and trepidation that so often um, many of us as we age might might sense. So thank you. Oh, oh uh, yes. Well, I'm selfish. I did it for myself, too. <laughs> <laughs> I needed it because our the cultural narrative for getting older is, is, just as you said, it's this downhill slide. And that is not God's plan at all. Um, so I'm excited for what God has ahead for you, Georgine, and for me and for every one of our listeners. And it's going to be good. Yes. God has good ahead for us. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing and thanks for talking with us here today. Thank you, Georgine. God bless Bless you. Again, uh, the author is Leslie Leyland Fields. I'm going to make sure that our Uh, Her web address is on the Facebook page, so you can uh, check that out if you'd like the study guide. The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. The uh, the book, rather, is published by Craigle and is available where books are sold. I appreciate a George Eliot quote in the first part of the book, Under Firsts. It's never too late to be what you might have been. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.